for Ghost Stories by Mrs. Molesworth was uh, published in London and New York by Macmillan & Co. in 1888. It's dedicated to her nieces, Liliana and Georgina, on the 5th of December, 1887. Lady Farhar's Old Lady, a true ghost story. Quote, One that was a woman, sir, but rest her soul, she's dead. Unquote. I myself have never seen a ghost. I am by no means sure that I wish ever to do so. But I have a friend whose experience in this respect has been less limited than mine. Till lately, however, I had never heard the details of Lady Farhar's adventure. Though the fact of there being a ghost story which she could, if she chose, relate with the authority of an eyewitness had been more than once alluded to before me. Living at extreme ends of the country, it is but seldom my friend and I are able to meet. But a few months ago, I had the good fortune to spend some days in her house, and one evening, our conversation happening to fall on the subject of the possibility of so-called supernatural visitations or communications, suddenly what I had heard returned to my memory. By the by, I exclaimed, we need not go far for an authority on the question. You have seen a ghost yourself, Margaret. I remember once hearing it alluded to before you, and you did not contradict it. I have so often meant to ask you for the whole story. Do tell it to us now. Lady Farhar hesitated for a moment, and her usually bright expression grew somewhat graver. When she spoke, it seemed to be with a slight effort. You mean what they call the story of my old lady, I suppose, she said at last. Oh, yes, if you care to hear it, I will tell it you. But there is not much to tell, remember? There seldom is in true stories of the kind, I replied. Genuine ghost stories are generally abrupt and inconsequent in the extreme. But on this very account, all the more impressive. Don't you think so? I don't know that I am a fair judge, she answered. Indeed, she went on rather gravely. My own opinion is that what you call true ghost stories are very seldom told at all. How do you mean? I don't quite understand you, I said a little perplexed by her words and tone. I mean, she replied, that people who really believe they have come in contact with anything of that kind seldom care to speak about it. Do you really think so? Do you mean that you feel so yourself? I exclaimed with considerable surprise. I had no idea you did, or I would not have mentioned the subject. Of course, you know, I would not ask you to tell it if it is the least painful or disagreeable to you to talk about it. But it isn't. Oh, no, it is not nearly so bad as that, she replied with a smile. I cannot really say it is either painful or disagreeable to me to recall it, for I cannot exactly apply either of these words to the thing itself. All that I feel is a sort of shrinking from the subject, strong enough to prevent my ever alluding to it lightly or carelessly. Of all things, I should just like to have a joke made of it. But with you, I have no fear of that. And you trust me, don't you? I don't mean as to truthfulness only, but you don't think me 
deficient in common sense and self-control, not morbid or very apt to be run away with my imagination, not the sort of person one would pick out is likely to see ghosts, I replied. Certainly not. You're far too sensible and healthy and vigorous. I can't very readily fancy you the victim of delusion of any kind. But as to ghosts, are they or are they not delusions? There lies the question. Tell us your experience of them anyway. So she told the story I had asked for, told it in the simplest language and with no exaggeration of tone or manner. As we sat there in her pretty drawing room, our chairs drawn close to the fire, for it was Christmas time and the weather was seasonable. Two or three of Margaret's children were in the room, though not within hearing of us. All looked bright and cheerful, nothing mysterious. Yet notwithstanding the total deficiency of ghostly accessories, the story impressed me vividly. It was early in the spring of 55 that it happened, began Lady Farhart. I never forget the year, for a reason I will tell you afterwards. It is fully 15 years ago now. A long time, but I am still quite able to recall the feeling this strange adventure of mine left on me, though a few details and particulars have grown confused and misty. I think it often happens so when one tries, as it were, too hard to be accurate and exaggerated in telling over anything. One's very honesty is against one. I have not told it over many times, but each time it seems more difficult to tell it quite exactly. The impression left at the time was so powerful that I have always dreaded incorrectness or exaggeration creeping in. It reminds me, too, of the curious way in which a familiar word or name grows distorted and then cloudy and strange if one looks at it too long or thinks about it too much. But I must get on with my story. Well, to begin again. In the winter of 54 to 55, we were living, my mother, my sisters, and I, that is, and from time to time my brother, in or rather near a quiet little village on the south coast of Ireland. We had gone there before the worst of the winter began at home for the sake of my health. I had not been as well as usual for some time. This greatly owing, I believe, to my having lately endured unusual anxiety of mind. And my dear mother dreaded the cold weather for me and determined to avoid it. I say that I had that I had, had unusual anxiety to bear. Still, it was not of a kind to render me morbid or fanciful. And what is even more to the point, my mind was perfectly free from prepossession or association in connection with the place we were living in or the people who had lived there before us. I simply knew nothing whatever of these people, and I had no sort of fancy about the house, that it was haunted or anything of that kind. And indeed, I never heard that it was thought to be haunted. It did not look like it. It was just a moderate-sized, somewhat old-fashioned country, or rather seaside house, furnished, with the exception of one room, in an ordinary enough modern style. The exception was a small bedroom on the bedroom floor, which, though not locked off, that is to say the key was left in the lock outside, was not given up for our use, as it was crowded with musty old furniture. 
packed closely together and all of a fashion many, many years older than that of the contents in the rest of the house. I remember some of the pieces of furniture still, though I think I was only once or twice in the room all the time we were there. There were two or three old-fashioned cabinets or bureau. There was a regular four-poster bedstead with the gloomy curtains still hanging round it, and ever so many spider-legged chairs and rickety tables. And I rather think in one corner there was a spinet. But there was nothing particularly curious or attractive, and we never thought of meddling with the things or poking about as girls sometimes do, for we always thought it was by mistake that this, that this room had not been locked off altogether so that no one should meddle with anything in it. We had rented the house for six months from a Captain Marmont, a half-pay officer, naval or military, I don't know which, for we never saw him, and all the negotiations were managed by an agent. Captain Marmont and his family, as a rule, lived at Ballyrena all the year round. They found it cheap and healthy, I suppose. But this year, they had preferred to pass the winter in some livelier neighborhood, and they were very glad to let the house. It never occurred to us to doubt that our landlords, being the owner of it, it was not till some time after we left that we learned that he himself was only a tenant, though a tenant of long standing. There were no people about to make friends with or to hear local gossip from. There were no gentry within visiting distance, and if there had been, we should hardly have cared to make friends for so short a time as we were to be there. The people of the village were mostly fishermen and their families. There were so many of them. We never got to know any especially. The doctor and the priest and the Protestant clergyman were all newcomers, and all three very uninteresting. The clergyman used to dine with us sometimes, as my brother had had some sort of introduction to him when they when we came to Ballyrena. But we never heard anything about the place from him. He was a great talker, too. I'm sure he would have told us anything he knew. In short, there was nothing romantic or suggestive either about our house or the village. But we didn't care. You see, we had gone there simply for rest and quiet and pure air, and we got what we wanted. Well, one evening about the middle of March, I was up in my room dressing for dinner. And just as I had about finished dressing, my sister Helen came in. I remember her saying as she came in, Aren't you ready yet, Maggie? Are you making yourself extra smart for Mr. Conroy? Mr. Conroy was the clergyman. He was dining with us that night. And then Helen looked at me and found fault with me, half in front, of course, for not having put on a prettier dress. I remember I said it was good enough for Mr. Conroy, who was no favorite of mine. But Helen wasn't satisfied till I agreed to wear a bright scarlet neck ribbon of hers. And she ran off to her room to fetch it. I followed her almost immediately. Her room and mine, I must by the by explain, were at extreme ends of a passage several yards in length. There was a wall on one side of this passage and the balustrade overlooking the staircase on the other. My room was at the end nearest the top of the staircase. There were no doors along the passage leading to Helen's room, but just beside her door at the end was that of the unused room I told you of, 
filled with the old furniture. The passage was lighted from above by a skylight. I mean, it was by no means dark or shadowy. And on the evening I'm speaking of, it was still clear daylight. We dined early at Ballyrena. I don't think it could have been more than a quarter to five when Helen came into my room. Well, as I was saying, I followed her almost immediately, so quickly that as I came out of my room, I was in time to catch sight of her as she ran along the passage and to see her go into her own room. Just as I lost sight of her, I was coming along more deliberately, you understand. Suddenly, how or when exactly I cannot tell, I perceived another figure walking along the passage in front of me. It was a woman, a little thin woman, but though she had her back to me, something in her gait told me she was not young. She seemed a little bent and walked feebly. I can remember her dress even now with the most perfect distinctiveness. She had a gown of gray clinging stuff, rather scanty in the skirt, and one of those funny little old-fashioned black shawls with a sewed-on border that you seldom see nowadays. Do you know the kind I mean? It was a narrow shawl-patterned border, and there was a short, tufty black fringe below the border. And she had a, a gray poke bonnet, a bonnet made of silk gathered onto a large, stiff frame. Drawn bonnets, they used to be called. I took in all these details of her dress in a moment. And even in that moment, I noticed, too, that the materials of her clothes looked good, though so plainest and old-fashioned. But somehow my first impulse when I saw her was to call out, Frazier, is that you? Frazier was my mother's maid. She was a young woman and not the least like the person in front of me. But I think a vague idea rushed across my mind that it might be Frazier dressed up to trick the other servants. But the figure took no notice of my exclamation. It, or she, walked on quietly, not even turning her head round in the least. She walked slowly down the passage, seemingly quite unconscious of my presence, and to my extreme amazement disappeared into the unused room. The key, as I think I told you, was always turned in the lock. That is to say, the door was locked, but the key was left in it. But the old woman did not seem to me to unlock the door or even to turn the handle. There seemed no obstacle in her way. She just quietly, as it were, walked through the door. Even by this time, I hardly think I felt frightened. What I had seen had passed too quickly for me to yet realize its strangeness. Still, I felt perplexed and vaguely uneasy. And I hurried on to my sister's room. She was standing by the toilet table searching for the ribbon. I think I must have looked startled, for before I could speak, she called out, Maggie. Whatever is the matter with you? You look as if you're going to faint. I asked her if she had heard anything, though it was an inconsistent question, for to my ears there had been no sound at all. Helen answered yes. A moment before I came into the room, she had heard the lock of the lumber room, so we called it, door click, and had wondered what I could be going in there for. Then I told her what I had seen. She looked a little startled, but declared it must have been one of the servants. If it is a trick of the servants, I answered, it should be exposed. 
And when Helen offered to search through the lumber room with me at once, I was very ready to agree to it. I was so satisfied of the reality of what I had seen that I declared to Helen that the old woman, whoever she was, must be in the room. It stood to reason that, having gone in, she must still be in there, as she could not possibly have come out again without our knowledge. So, plucking up our courage, we went to the lumber room door. I felt so certain that but a moment before someone had opened it that I took hold of the knob quite confidently and turned it, just as one always does to an open door. The handle turned, but the door did not yield. I stooped down to see why. The reason was plain enough. The door was still locked, locked as usual, and the key in the lock. Then Helen and I stared at each other. Her mind was evidently recurring to the sound she had heard. What I began to think can hardly be put into words. But when we got over this new start a little, we set to work to search the room as we had intended. And we searched it thoroughly, I assure you. We dragged the old tables and chairs out of their corners and peeped behind the curtains and chests of drawers where no one could have been hidden. Then we climbed upon the old bedstead and shook the curtains till we were covered with dust. And then we crawled under the valances and came out looking like sweeps. But there was nothing to be found. There was certainly no one in the room, and by all appearances, no one could have been there for weeks. We had hardly time to make ourselves fit to be seen when the dinner bell rang, and we had to hurry downstairs. As we ran down, we agreed to say nothing of what had happened before the servants. But after dinner in the drawing room, we told our story. My mother and brother listened to it attentively, said it was very strange, and owned themselves as puzzled as we. Mr. Conroy, of course, laughed uproariously and made us dislike him more than ever. After he had gone, we talked it over again among ourselves, and my mother, who hated mysteries, did her utmost to explain what I had seen in a matter-of-fact, natural way. Was I sure it was not only Helen herself I had seen, after fancying she had reached her room. Was I quite certain it was not Fraser after all, carrying a shawl perhaps, which made her look different? Might it not have been this, that, or the other? It was no use. Nothing could convince me that I had not seen what I had seen. And though to satisfy my mother, we cross-questioned Fraser. It was with no result in the way of explanation. Fraser evidently knew nothing that could throw light on it, and she was quite certain that at the time I had seen the figure, both the other servants were downstairs in the kitchen. Fraser was perfectly trustworthy. We warned her not to frighten the others by speaking about the affair after all, but we could not leave off speaking about it among ourselves. We spoke about it so much for the next few days that at last my mother lost patience and forbade us to mention it again. At least she pretended to lose patience. In reality, I believe she put a stop to the discussion because she thought it might have a bad effect on our nerves, on mine especially, for I found out afterwards that, in her anxiety, even she went to the length of writing about it to our old doctor at home, and that it was by his advice she acted in forbidding us to talk about it anymore. Poor dear mother, I don't know that it was very sound advice. One's mind often runs all the more on things one is forbidden to mention, It certainly was so with me, for I thought over my strange adventure almost incessantly for some days after we left off talking about it. Here Margaret paused. 
And that is all, I asked, feeling a little disappointed at the unsatisfactory ending to the true ghost story. All, repeated Lady Farhar, rousing herself as if from a reverie. All? Oh, dear no. I have sometimes wished it had been, for I don't think what I have told you would have left any long-lasting impression on me. All. Oh, dear, no. I'm only at the beginning of my story. So we resettled ourselves again to listen, and Lady Farhar continued. For some days, as I said, I could not help thinking a good deal of the mysterious old woman I had seen. Still, I assure you, I was not exactly frightened. I was more puzzled, puzzled and annoyed at not being able in any way to explain the mystery. But ten days or so from the time of my first adventure, the impression was beginning to fade. Indeed, the day before the evening I am now going to tell you of, I don't think my old lady had been in my head at all. It was filled with other things. So don't you see the explaining away what I saw as entirely a delusion, a fancy of my own brain, has a weak point here. For had it been all my fancy, it would surely have happened sooner. At the time, my mind really was full of the subject. Though, even if it had been so, it would not have explained the curious coincidence of my fancy with facts, actual facts, of which the time I was not, I was in complete ignorance. It must have been just about 10 days after my first adventure that I happened one evening, between 8 and 9 o'clock, to be alone upstairs in my own room. We had dined at half past five as usual and had been sitting together in the drawing room since dinner, but I had made some little excuse for coming upstairs, the truth being that I wanted to be alone to read a letter, to read over a letter which the evening post, there actually was an evening post at Ballyrena, had brought me and which I had only time to glance at. It was a very welcome and dearly prized letter, and the reading of it made me very happy. I don't think I had felt so happy in all the months we had been in Ireland as I was feeling that evening. Do you remember my saying that I never forgot the year all this happened? It was the year 55 and the month of March, the spring following that first dreadful Crimean winter, and the news had just come to England of the Tsar's death and everyone was wondering and hoping and fearing what would be the results of it. I had no very near friends in the Crimea, but of course, like everyone else, I was intensely interested in all that was going on. And in this letter of mine, there was told the news of the Tsar's death, and there was a good deal of comment upon it. I had read my letter, more than once, I dare say, and was beginning to think I must go down to the others in the drawing room. But the fire in my bedroom was very tempting. It was burning so brightly that though I had got up from my chair by the fireside to leave the room and had blown out the candle I had read my letter by, I yielded to the inclination to sit down again for a minute or two to dream pleasant dreams and think pleasant thoughts. At last I rose and turned towards the door. It was standing wide open, by the by, but I had hardly made a step from the fireplace when I was stopped short by what I saw. Again, the same strange, indefinable feeling of not knowing how or when it had come there. Again, the same painful sensation of perplexity, not yet amounting to fear as to whom or what it was I saw before me. 
The room, you must understand, was perfectly flooded with firelight, except in the corners, perhaps. Every object was as distinct as possible, and the object I was staring at was not in a corner, but standing right there before me, between me and the open door, alas, in the middle of the room. It was the old woman again, but this time with her face towards me. With a look upon it, it seemed to me as if she were conscious of my presence. It is very difficult to tell over thoughts and feelings that can hardly have taken any time to pass or that passed almost simultaneously. My very first impulse at this time was, as it had been the first time I saw her, to explain in some natural way the presence before me. I think this says something for my common sense, does it not? My mind did not readily desert matters of fact, you see. I did not think of Fraser this time, but the thought went through my mind. She must be some friend of the servants who comes in to see them of an evening. Perhaps they have sent her up to look at my fire. So at first I looked up at her with simple inquiry. But as I looked, my feelings changed. I realized that this was the same being who had appeared so mysteriously once before. I recognized every detail of her dress. I even noticed it more acutely than the first time. For instance, I recollect observing that here and there the short, tufty fringe of her shawl was stuck together instead of hanging smoothly and evenly all round. I looked up at her face. I cannot now describe the features beyond saying that the whole face was refined and pleasing and that in the expression there was certainly nothing to alarm or repel. It was rather wistful and beseeching. The look in the eyes anxious, the lips slightly parted as if she were on the point of speaking. I have since thought that if I had spoken, if I could have spoken, for I did make one effort to do so, but no audible words would come at my bidding, the spell that bound the poor soul, this mysterious wanderer from some shadowy borderland between life and death, might have been broken, and the message that I now believe burdened her delivered. Sometimes I wish I could have done it, but then again, oh no, a voice from those unreal lips would have been too awful. Flesh and blood could not have stood it. For another instant, I kept my eyes fixed upon her without moving. Then there came over me at last with an awful thrill, a sort of suffocating gasp of horror, the consciousness, the actual realization of the fact that this person before me this presence was no living human be being, no dweller in our familiar world, not a woman, but a ghost. Oh, that was an awful moment. I pray that I may never again endure another like it. There is something so indescribably frightful in the feeling that we are on the verge of being tried beyond what we can bear. The ordinary conditions are slipping away from under us, that in another moment, reason or life itself must snap with the strain. And all these feelings I then went underwent. At last I moved, moved backwards from the figure. I dared not attempt to pass her, yet I could not at first turn away from her. I stepped backwards, facing her still as I did so, till I was close to the fireplace. Then I turned sharply from her, sat down again in the in the low chair, still standing by the hearth, resolutely forcing myself to gaze into the fire, which was blazing cheerfully, though conscious all the time of a terrible fascination urging me to look round again to the middle of the room.
Gradually, however, now that I no longer saw her, I began a little to recover myself. I tried to bring my sense and reason to bear on the matter. This being, I said to myself, cannot harm me. I am under God's protection as much as at this moment as at any moment of my life. All creatures, even disembodied spirits, if there be such, and this among them, if it be one, are under his control. Why should I be afraid? I'm being tried. My courage and trust are being tried to the utmost. Let me prove them. Let me keep my own self-respect by mastering this cowardly, unreasonable terror. And after a time, I began to feel stronger and surer of myself. Then I rose from my seat and turned towards the door again. And oh, the relief of seeing that the way was clear. My terrible visitor had disappeared. I hastened across the room. I passed the few steps of the passage that lay between my door and the staircase and hurried down the first flight in a sort of suppressed agony of eagerness to find myself again safe in the human companionship of my mother and sisters in the cheerful drawing room below. But my trial was not yet over. Indeed, it seemed to me afterwards that it had only now reached its height. Perhaps the strain on my nervous system was now beginning to tell, and my powers of endurance were all but exhausted. I cannot say if it was so or not. I can only say that for my agony and terror of horror, of absolute fear, was far past describing in words when, just as I reached the landing at the top, at the foot of the first short staircase, and I was on the point of running down the longer flight still before me. I saw again, coming slowly up the stairs as if to meet me, the ghostly figure of the old woman. It was too much. I was reckless by this time. I could not stop. I rushed down the staircase, brushing past the figure as I went. I used the word intentionally. I did brush past her. I felt her. This part of my experience was, I believe, quite at variance with the sensations of orthodox ghost seers. But I am really telling you all I was conscious of. Then I hardly remember anything more. My agony broke out at last, in a loud, shrill cry, and I suppose I fainted. I only know that when I recovered my senses, I was in the drawing room on the sofa, surrounded by my terrified mother and sisters. But it was not for some time that I could find a voice or courage to tell them what had happened to me. For several days, I was on the brink of a serious illness, and for long afterwards, I could not endure to be left alone, even in the broadest daylight. Lady Farhar stopped. I fancied, however, from her manner, that there was more to tell, so I said nothing, and in a minute or two, she went on speaking. We did not stay long at Ballyrena after this. I was not sorry to leave it. But still, before the time came for us to do so, I had begun to recover from the most painful part of the impression left upon me by my strange adventure. And when I was at home again, far from the place where it had happened, I gradually lost the feeling of horror altogether and remembered it only as a very curious and inexplicable experience. Now, and even then, I did not shrink from talking about it. Generally, I think, with a vague hope that somehow, sometime or other, light might be thrown upon it. Not that I ever expected 
or could have believed it possible that the supernatural character of the adventure could be explained away. But I always had a misty fancy that sooner or later I should find out something about my old lady, as we came to call her, who she had been and what her history was. And did you? I asked eagerly. Yes, I did, Margaret answered. To some extent, at least, I learned the explanation of what I had seen. This is how it was. Nearly a year after we had left Ireland, I was staying with one of my aunts. And one evening, some young people who were also visiting her began to talk about ghosts. And my aunt, who had heard something of the story from my mother, begged me to tell it. I did so, just as I have told now, just as I have now told it to you. And when I had finished, an elderly lady who was present and who had listened very attentively surprised me a little by asking the name of the house where it happened. Was it Ballyrena? she said. I answered yes, wondering how she knew it, for I had not mentioned it. Then I can tell you whom you saw, she exclaimed. It must have been one of the old Miss Fitzgeralds, the eldest one. The description suits her exactly. I was quite puzzled. We had never heard of any Fitzgeralds at Ballyrena. I said so to the lady and asked to explain what she meant. She told me all she knew. It appeared there had been a family of that name for many generations at Ballyrena. Once upon a time, a long ago once upon a time, the Fitzgeralds had been great and rich, but gradually one misfortune after another had brought them down in the world. And at the time my informant heard about them, the only representatives of the old family were three maiden ladies, already elderly. Mrs. Gordon, the lady who told me all this, had met them once and had been much impressed by what she heard of them. They had got poorer and poorer till at last they had to give up the struggle and sell, or let on a long lease, their dear old home, Ballyrena. They were too proud to remain in their own country after this, and spent the rest of their lives on the continent, wandering about from place to place. The most curious part of it was that nearly all of their wandering was actually on foot. They were too poor to afford to travel much in the usual way, and yet, once torn from their own associations, the traveling mania seized them. They seemed absolutely unable to rest. So on foot, and speaking not a word of any language but their own, these three desolate sisters journeyed over a great part of the continent. They visited most of the principal towns and were well known in several. I dare, dare say they are still remembered at some of the places they used to stay at, though never for more than a short time altogether. Mrs. Gordon had met them somewhere. I forgot where, but it was many, many years ago. Since then, she had not heard of them. She did not know if they were alive or dead. She was only certain that the description of my old lady was exactly like that of the eldest of the sisters and that the name of their home was Ballyrena. And I remember her saying, if ever a heart was buried in a house, it was that of poor old Miss Fitzgerald. That was all Mrs. Gordon could tell me, continued Lady Farhar, but it led to my learning a little more. I told my brother what I had heard. He used often at that time to be in Ireland on business, and to satisfy me, the next time he went, he visited the village of Ballyrena again, and in one way and another, he found out a few particulars. The house, you remember, had been let to us by a Captain Marmont, 
He, my brother discovered, was not the owner of the place, as we had naturally imagined, but only rented it on a very long lease from some ladies of the name of Fitzgerald. It had been in Captain Marmont's possession for a great many years at the time he let it to us, and the Fitzgeralds, never returning there even to visit it, had come to almost be forgotten. The room with the old-fashioned furniture had been reserved by the owners of the place to leave some of their poor old treasures in, relics too cumbersome to be carried about with them in their strange wanderings, but too precious, evidently, to be parted with. We, of course, never could know what may not have been hidden away in some of the queer old bureau I told you of. Family papers of importance, perhaps, possibly some ancient love letters, forgotten in the confusion of their leave-taking, a lock of hair or a withered flower, perhaps that she, my poor old lady, would fain have clasped in her hand when dying, or have been buried with her. Ah, yes, there must be many a pitiful old story that is never told. Lady Fodhar stopped and gazed dreamily and half sadly into the fire. Then Miss Fitzgerald was dead when you were at Ballyrena, I asked. Margaret looked up with some surprise. Did I not say so? She exclaimed. That was the point of most interest in what my brother discovered. He could not hear the exact date of her death, but he learned with certainty that she was dead, had died, at Geneva, I think, sometime in the month of March in the previous year. The same month, March 55, in which I had twice seen the apparition at Ballyrena. This was my friend's ghost story. And so, what was lost has once again been found. Thank you for listening and for helping to resurrect this bygone story. For tales only live when they are told. Spare a thought for the stories of our time who befall a similar fate. Not all great artists are remembered in history's library. And if saving stories inspires you, then come back to our reading room. Bring a friend, perhaps. And just for a while, stand firm in the face of time.